This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Maritime historians recently discovered the shipwreck of a schooner called Trinidad in Lake Michigan. Now, despite spending nearly a century and a half underwater, the wreck had been so well preserved that it still contained anchors, bells, and some of the crew members' belongings. Brendan Baylod is a Wisconsin maritime historian, one of the two to discover this wreck, and he joins us now. Brendan, welcome to Reset. Hi. First, I, I mentioned the ship was a schooner. What is that? Well, a schooner is a sailing vessel, uh, unpowered. It's got uh, usually two or three masts. Uh, and what's important about a schooner is the masts are triangular, not square-shaped. So uh, it was the main type of vessel that was on the Great Lakes that was used to deliver cargoes for uh, most of the 19th century. So the, the ship was also a, a cantaloupe, and it was found to be outfitted for wire rigging. Can you talk more about that? Sure. She was a, a canaler. So that was a phrase for a canal schooner that was built to pass through the Welland Canal between Lakes Erie and Ontario. Um, the main uh, traffic at that time was grain. And so grain was coming out of Wisconsin and uh, a lot of Chicago and being shipped to Oswego, New York, and then down the Erie and uh, Oswego canals. Uh, so if you were in New York City eating a sandwich in 1870, the bread was probably made with grain from Wisconsin. Wow. I mean... Are you surprised by all of this? Um, not really. I mean, we, we uh, so, so have been looking for wrecks on the Great Lakes for years. I've, I've found a few. And so, uh, you know, I knew the story in general behind this ship. I had been uh, researching uh, to, for a book that I wrote about 20 years ago about all the ships lost in Wisconsin waters. And this one caught my eye because it was findable. You know, there's a lot of ships that sort of sailed through a crack in the lake, and we just, they could be anywhere. But the captain gave a pretty good account of where this one went down. And so, you know, I had it filed away, and uh, we eventually uh, went after it. Um, we'd been looking for about two years, and uh, this year was our year. How often did ships doing this type of work sink? Oh, every year. It was like deadliest catch out there. Uh, on any, any given year, you'd have 20 to 50 major ships lost on the Great Lakes because they didn't have weather reporting. You know, and, and, and November, that's, you know, the gales in November, that's when, you know, you had to get in all the cargoes. That's when the grain was harvested. That's when you needed coal and wood for the winter. And so there was a big, you know, uh, incentive financially for these ships to go out at the most dangerous time of the year, and they had no idea what they were sailing into. Um, they weren't modern vessels. These guys didn't have, you know, uh, waterproof clothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, so many ships were lost and thousands of sailors died every year. It was one of the most dangerous professions you could have. Wow. You know, I also played around with the 3D model of the shipwreck. And I mean, I hear shipwreck and I think it's just going to look like a total mess. But the, the hull of the ship, it looks pretty intact. That's right. That's one of the reasons I was interested in this ship is because it sank slowly and in deep water. And so we knew it had a, a chance to be intact. We had no idea until we, when we put that camera down, we were stunned because the deck house was still on it. The anchors were still, you know, on it. If you, when you look inside the deck house, you can still see dishes stacked in the racks in the kitchen. Um, we, we almost never see something like that. And uh, when, when, when we found it, we reported it immediately to our, our state historical society. And uh, Tammy Thompson, our state archae underwater archaeologist, immediately arranged to have a photogrammetry model made. And that re really helps us you know, yeah. tell this story and explain to people how intact it is. You can wear a virtual reality headset and literally walk down the deck of this ship wow. uh, in virtual reality. And so you know, it really helps us to 
not just tell the ship's story, but uh, you make it part of the community. So, you know, the people of Algoma, the city that it's off of, can uh, can see what, what a you know, historical treasure they have just off their shore. I mean, it's all, it's all just listen to you describe it. It's so unbelievable. I mean, a stack of dishes? Yeah, I mean, it's not unheard of. This is not. Really? Believe it or not, the best preserved wreck in Wisconsin waters, certainly not in the Great Lakes. There are wrecks that are in way better uh, states of preservation. Not many. This is like a, in the top 5%. But um, it's because of the cold, fresh water. Um, you know, these wrecks uh, are preserved amazingly for hundreds of years uh it's only been in the last 20 years that these invasive quagga mussels from the black sea have come into the great lakes and started to really cake these wrecks uh they're just completely encrusted now with zebra mussels and they weren't for 100 200 years mm. <laughs> and so it's kind of a rush for us to find them and document them because a lot of them are collapsing from the weight of the zebra mussels and are being you know deteriorating from it so that's part of the reason why we get out there and we try to find them, we try to document them is because we want to record how they are before they're not there anymore. Yeah, of course. Well, speaking of that, talk more about the technology that you used to not just sure. find but explore this wreck. So uh, primarily we use side scanning sonar, and I, I use a powerful sonar that prints a three-dimensional picture of the bottom that's a third of a mile wide with every pass. And so, you know, a 140-foot ship doesn't look like much when we met it over. We ran the thing over, and Bob and I, we, we didn't even, we almost didn't go or turn around because it just sort of looked like a nondistinct smudge. <laughs> but it was the only thing we'd seen all day. So we said, yeah, let's turn around and take a look. And when we ran it back over, it had half the speed and only 600 foot of, um, of width. It almost burned a hole in the screen. Uh, we wow. knew right away we had a wreck, and we knew what wreck it was. We were specifically looking for the Trinidad. And, you know, we had to pinch ourselves to believe it was real. Um, we were just so uh, uh, kind of bowled over by it. Uh, we broke our phones and started taking movies. Of <laughs> I can imagine. The sonar screen. Um, the other things that we used to explore it, um, we brought in uh, uh, a consultant, Tom Crossman, who brought in a really good remote-operated vehicle that had a uh, high-definition camera and a forward-looking sonar. And we were able to land that ROV right uh, behind the ship. And using the sonar, we measured the, the, the hull just right down to a, an inch. And that sealed it that that was the Trinidad because we had her dimensions from her historical records. And then, of course, the photogrammetry model was made by a diver, a uh, three-hour and 20-minute dive <laughs> to go that deep. The wreck's in about 270 feet of water, so you have to come up really slow. But he took 3,600 high-definition still photos. And then uh, to make a photogrammetry model, you've taken, it uses a powerful piece of software to stitch all those images together at the correct angles. And it literally makes a three-dimensional rotatable model that you can wear a VR headset and explore, or you can print out on a 3D printer. So it was mm. a, a heck of a contribution. Uh, Zach Whitrock was the diver who did that for us. So how exactly were you able to confirm that this wreck was, in fact, the Trinidad? So we're clear. Well, is it? As I mentioned, you know, we, we put a, a, a remote operating vehicle with a forward-looking sonar on it, and we measured its length right down to the inch. So we knew this ship that was did 130, yeah, 139 feet long. And there were a couple other things. It was wire-rigged. It was a very early wire-rigged vessel. Now, after about 1880, all vessels were wire-rigged. But this vessel was built with wire rigging in 1867, and uh, there are no other ships that should be in that area that looked like that, that were canalers, and that were wire-rigged. And it also had coal in the holds, and that's what she was carrying. She was bound from Milwaukee uh, to drop off a load of coal. Um, and so, yeah, we were able to confirm her. Mm. 
And for those who still don't quite get it, talk about how historically significant this find is, Brendan. I mean, and did it shed additional light for you on that time period, right? And what life and what business was like back in the early 1880s in the Midwest? It it did. One of the things that, that we really got out of this story was that uh, how lucrative the grain trade was. I mean, millionaires were being made uh, every year. These guys were boarding merchants in, in Oswego who built this ship. Wow. Within five years, they became multimillionaires by, uh, just through the grain trade. Um, Oddly enough, they didn't invest any money in the ship. They kept just milking it as a cash cow, and its value kept dropping. It kept getting in worse and worse shape until it was only 13 years old, and a block fell from the rigging, nearly killing the captain. Um, her hull started leaking. Uh, the captains were afraid to take her out in November. Uh, they laid her up early because of it. And so we know that she was in bad shape. I mean, by the time she went down, she was a little more than a floating coffin. And, um, you know, but... People were reluctant to say anything bad because, you know, you wouldn't get another job. <laughs> right. I, and, and everyone on board the Trinidad escaped. Is that right? No, except for the ship mascot, yeah. the captain's Newfoundland dog. He was asleep down in the uh, in the pilot house or the cabin by the ship's, uh, ship's stove. Uh, and when the ship sank, it went down by the bow and the stern lifted high in the air. And I would imagine he couldn't climb up the, the slanted floor to get to the exit and oh. went down with the ship. Yeah, a, a large Newfoundland dog, right? Yes. Um, so the, the the plans for the ship, really, what we what we want to do now is is continue to tell its story, primarily um, to make people more aware about these time capsules we have on the bottom of the Great Lakes, and uh, to also let the community there at Algoma, you know, uh, kind of adopt this new part of their community history because they're the ones who cared for the crew when they came ashore. These guys were suffering from exposure. And they were given uh, new clothes and, uh, you know, really cared for by the people of Algoma. Um, but the ship was forgotten about, you know. I, I, would, I would assume very few people there at Algoma had ever heard of this ship before mm-hmm. we found it. Wow. The owners of, of the Trinidad, I'm reading here, didn't invest in the ship's upkeep, right? You know, leaks and decayed rigging and other problems really started to plague the vessel. That's right. I mean, uh, and it was odd because when I look at our insurance records, other ships were getting regular maintenance, right? Uh, I think it just had to do with, uh, you know, how you ran your business. And uh, this ship was owned by the Finn brothers of, uh, in Oswego, uh, Patrick and Nicholas Finn. And they were big-time grain merchants. They owned other vessels, too. But, yeah, they just didn't put any money into this ship, and they literally sailed her into the bottom of the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it wasn't uncommon. We, you, you see that, you know. The ship was only as good as the people that owned it. That that's a, a true fact for sure. I'm also trying to picture that moment. Uh, you know, back in 1881, I know the captain and, and his crew, uh, the ones of course who escaped in that small boat. I mean, I hear they were rowing for hours upon hours in, in just terrible weather before they came ashore yeah. in, in Algoma. That's right. I mean, it was a, about a 10-mile road ashore. They could see the lights of Algoma. This all happened at 4.45 in the morning in pretty, you know, very cold weather. It was in the, the high 30s out. Uh, they were in about uh, three to four footers in a very small boat. And all they could see was some dim lights 10 miles away on the That's shore. What an and ordeal. Believe me, when I was out there 10 miles offshore, the shoreline just looks like a, a thin sliver. You're really out there. It took them a long time to get to shore, and um, you know, they're lucky they made it. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you're looking to nominate the Trinidad to be included in the National Register of Historic Places. What does that mean exactly? 
Well, the National Register is, you know, obviously most of the people think of it for historic buildings, but it establishes that this is an important, a nationally, histor- nationally important historical site. And uh, it does a few other things. It increases the public awareness of the, of the site, which we think is important because wrecks that are, shipwrecks that are anonymous and that nobody cares about or nobody knows about mm-hmm. are the most vulnerable to theft or damage. And, you know, divers do, and there are divers who can visit this wreck uh, using mixed gas. Uh, it's not that deep. Um, you know, we don't want people going down there and just stealing stuff from it. Um, and, you know, it's protected from illegal salvage by the Abandoned Shipwreck Act of 1987. All shipwrecks in the Great Lakes, with very few exceptions, are covered under that and are considered archaeological sites. So putting on the National Register establishes uh, right. firmly that it is uh, a historic wreck and that it's uh, not open to salvage. Interesting stuff. Brendan Baylot is a Wisconsin Maritime Historian. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.